My name is Jim, and I am an alcoholic, and I'm grateful to be one. First time I heard that, I thought that guy's crazy. He wasn't. I was. There's there's been a mistake made in that program, at, or that that flyer. It said I'm from Cincinnati. Well, not really, because I was conceived in South Charleston and delivered in Ironton. There are parts of my family history that are not too clear because nobody ever talks about them. You see, I'm the only registered alcoholic in my family. And uh, I didn't get the, the beer I drank from the neighbors, I'll tell you that. I'm supposed to tell how it was, how we got here, and how it is today. And that's basically all I know about alcoholism. I can talk around a lot, and I'm a, I'm a wonderful uh, reader and storyteller, and and I can uh, I can analyze and and you know tell you what I think about it, but uh, that's uh, not really too important because how I got here was I drank too much for too long for all the right and wrong reasons, and uh, I just kind of one day got up and said I believe I'll quit drinking, joined AA, and things have been great ever since. <laughs> Thanks for the check. I'll be seeing you, folks. <laughs> that's the way I'd like it to be, but it wasn't that way. Uh, I think uh, I was born and raised in an alcoholic family, and it was a happy alcoholic family. Uh, my alcoholic parents never lost work or anything like that. They went to went to work every day, and they they taught us to drink responsibly. I think that's what they thought, anyhow. But. I, all I can tell you is my first alcoholic drink was when I was 13 years old. I was up the holler shoveling road fill with a buddy of mine. And uh, we'd fill his dad's truck up, and he'd take the truck, go back down a holler and, and fill in the holes, and come back up. And after about the third trip this hot May day, Bill said, Hey, meat left a half a keg of blats up by the lake. You want to go up? And uh, you bet. So we headed up the hill, and I can still remember that blat sitting in my belly and my toes and my fingertips and my nose. Just kind of this wonderful, wonderful feeling just came over me. And that was, uh, that was, I caught my alcoholism from that keg of blats. I'm sure you've got your own keg you got it from, but, but that first time that stuff hit my stomach and my brain, boy, I felt so good. My pimples fell off. I could dance better. I could talk to girls. I wasn't afraid anymore, and I wasn't alone. You know, I. It was wonderful. We spent that summer drinking every third day because Bill worked on Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays, and we drank on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday nights. And I had a paper route, and every cent I made went for Blatz. Uh, at that time, that you know that was okay. I was fortunate. I was sh shipped out of Ironton uh, for high school. I was a pretty smart little kid, and they shipped me up to a finishing school in Cleveland, and for that I'm grateful. I didn't like it at the time. Uh, the reason I'm grateful is that it kept me alive, because they didn't serve any beer there, or whiskey, or anything else, and in Ironton you could buy it just like you can around here. If you're big enough to get it on the, on the, uh, your quarter on the bar, you could get a beer. Well, they shipped me up there, and I spent four years of resentment. And got drunk every summer as I came home and would work. And we spent a lot of summers down in North Carolina on the beach down there. 
and the the uh, the order of the day was that you didn't drink till five because you worked all day and you started drinking at five and we'd party all night until uh, the party was over and uh, that was summer. I drank alcoholically from the first time I started. Uh, it was daily in the summer and uh, just on vacations in the winter when I got home. I was never, you know, it was never thought of as wrong at all, and I don't think it is to this day, to drink. For me it's wrong, but uh, I was a sucker for alcoholism. I didn't have the symptoms early on. As a kid, my God, I was over hangovers by the next day at noon, ready to go at it again. As I went on further and further, I got out of high school with a little bit of trouble, not too much. I was brewing beer in the basement of my uh, dormitory and selling the proceeds. Uh, I'd sell, you know, shares in the, the Klein Brewing Company, and we'd brew it behind a furnace down in the basement. And the guys got uh, what we made. That stuff, uh, it didn't have a whole lot of, uh, whole lot of, uh, what can I say? It didn't have a whole lot of class to it, but boy, it had a wallop. It would pack a wallop. If you could get it past your nose, you were okay. Because, uh, whew, one bottle of that and your knees would wobble. It was, <laughs> that's the way they ought to make that stuff. <laughs> you wouldn't have to go to the bathroom so often. I mean, that's... God. Well, I got out of high school, and they, they shipped me off to college. I wanted to go and ended up at Georgetown in D.C. And there, once again, I uh, my alcoholism was, was kind of progressing nicely. I was a periodic alcoholic at this time, at this time. I could get over my hangovers and my, my indiscretions and my problems. And, uh, you know, those, those little fender benders in a parking lot really didn't mean anything. You know, and the fact that uh, I, I can remember one night as a teenager, I was about 16 or 17 years old, had a driver's license, and there was a football game that night. Somehow I was driving the family car, and the next day everybody was laughing and screaming. They said, Jim, you know, you were funnier in hell last night. I said, no kidding, was I? He says, yeah, you were driving all over town in second gear. I said, I don't, uh, don't, yeah, mm mm-hmm. I don't remember any of that. There was no recall of that at all. And they were all in the car. They were having a ball. But my blackouts were from the beginning. Got out of high school, went over to college, and and I got through a lot of college pretty... Did about three years' worth over there. And I was in a hurry, and once again, I could always do my job. You know, I was raised in in a productive alcoholic family. You did your job first, and then you had your your booze. And I treated school that same way. I figured I had one shot at it, so I'd better get it done right and do it, do what I had to do and get on through. And uh, something happened there that's, that's I bring up only in that uh, I was at a, a Young Republicans party. I, you know, that's the way it was. And I was, that was Barry Goldwater's election. <laughs> campaign. <laughs> I left the uh, Barry Goldwater election party that November 4th of that year at about 9.30 that night because the election was already over and we'd been drinking at this party anyhow. And I was headed off off a of campus on my motorcycle and I never got off the parking lot. 
That was a blackout that was a little significant in my life because I woke up about a month later and I ended up uh, with a cast from my neck to my knee and I spent three months in that hospital before they let me out again. And the fact was that I was I was there in a cast from my neck to my knee and I never lacked for something to drink. I mean, if you're a real alcoholic, you can get something to drink no matter where you are. The windowsill had, by that time I was, I think, drinking Budweiser, I don't know. And uh, in my closet over here was about three or four-fifths of bourbon, vodka, you name it. What a 19-year-old kid's doing with a liquor cabinet, I don't know. They didn't seem to, didn't seem to bother the, authority, the authorities any, but, but uh, it didn't seem to bother me anyhow. You know, that's just the way I live. That was the way it was. I got out of there and got home, and that was, I was to use that... Uh, that injury that I got, it broke my back and skull and crushed chest and all this good stuff. But I was to use that that injury and that uh, that problem for the next many years as an excuse to drink. I can still remember sitting and laying in the couch in the front room in our house, listening to my mother talk to my aunt Alberta. I'm still getting to, to the point of where I could walk and. Uh, I heard him say, isn't Jimmy drinking a lot? This is my aunt speaking. And my mother comes back, yeah, but he's in a lot of pain. I wasn't in any pain. I woke up in that hospital, I wasn't in any pain. I wasn't, period, you know, but I needed a drink. So any time that, uh, that problems kind of arose, I started walking with a limp a lot, bent over, holding my back. You know, I needed a drink. So, it's, uh, I, I, I got out of college and, and uh, went on to Ohio State, to Ohio State Dental School. I'm a dentist, and they gave me a, they gave me a degree up there, and, and uh, just by hook and by crook, I just, I made it through, and I did well when I was there, because I was a perfectionist, and I'm glad of that. I worked hard, I drank hard, and damn near didn't make it through, but uh, the thing was that that whole time I was up there, I was alcoholic and didn't know it. There were a lot of funny stuff that happened to me that, that would take too long to tell here, except for one little story about I left my frat house one night. I was driving back to my apartment with my, my newly married wife, and uh, some guy cut me off in the street. I had about six beers. You know, you need that to steady your hand when you're working late. And I got an instant resentment for this guy. And so I dogged him. I got right up behind him and gave him a hard time. It's about one in the morning, something like that. And finally, he'd had enough, and he pulled over, and I was going to get that so-and-so. And I pulled over right after him, and he got out of that car. He got out of that car, and he got out of that car, and he got out of that car. <laughs> I knew I'd made a mistake, but I wouldn't go back down. So I got out of the car, and I, the guy swung at me, and I took one punch and did him in. He hit me right here and broke his hand. That was the end of the fight. And I, you know, <laughs> I was already semi-conscious, so, you know, a little, little blow to the head didn't hurt me any. 
And for some reason that night, he broke his hand when he hit me. I ended up at his house, soaking his hand in ice water and asking him out to dinner the next day. And I don't ask me how. <laughs> God, craziness. I went home. I thought that was normal. You know? Well, I got out of, out of Ohio State and, uh, I can remember taking the, the state boards and the national boards, and I can remember taking the national boards. I'm sitting there at noon, and I'm I'm a little queasy because I've been drinking a lot each night before. And I'm standing there with all these students around at the student union where we're taking the test, looking across the street at noon, wanting to go across the street to the South Heidelberg to get a beer so I'd feel a little better and kind of quiet down my stomach. But I didn't, because I knew that they know that something was wrong with me if I had to go over there and have a beer. If I hadn't been an alcoholic, I could have walked across the street and said, give me a beer, drank it, gone back and finished the test. But I was getting a little queasy about my drinking, and uh, I didn't know why. I got out of there and took the state board, same deal, drinking a half a fifth before each test. And the, I must have smelled like a rose, but nobody said anything. They just didn't say anything. Came down to Cincinnati after that and went into practice or ran a clinic down in the bottoms of Cincinnati. Worked for the health department for a year. And during this time, my drinking was getting on again, off again. I didn't drink at work. I didn't think. I would go to work so sick on Mondays that I'd just be shaken apart. And I'll tell you, you know, the sight of somebody coming at you with a Novocaine needle whose hand looks like a jackhammer going <laughs> must have been awful. I'd sneak up on them. And if I could get the palm of my hand down like this, I'd quit shaking, you know. I shook from here back. Stomach was quivering the whole bit. People that talk about alcoholics lacking willpower have never been that sick. You know, if I'm that sick today, I don't even get out of bed. But I'd go to work like that, and then I'd take Tuesdays off, because I knew if I took Mondays off, they'd know that I'd been drinking all weekend. So I'd take Tuesdays off, and then go back to work Wednesdays. That's all kind of strange stuff that's going on. There, there are things going on at home right now that I can't explain, and I can't, I'll can't. i drop into a fog here because I don't really remember a lot of this next next year or two. My wife can. She's got her own story. And the first time I heard it, I was sitting right next to her at a meeting, and she was given a lead for Al-Anon, and I heard some stuff that I'd never known happened. And I'll ta- tell you, and it, it, it would gag a maggot, you know. And, but, the reason I didn't know, because I was going into blackouts, and my blackouts weren't like, my blackouts weren't of the world-class variety, you know. I'm not one of these guys that get drunk and end up in Tijuana, or Paris, or New York, or Los Angeles. I could get drunk and go into a blackout, and go in and out of a blackout walking across this room that quick, or... Wake up when the cop is writing me a ticket and he's a little angry and I'm wondering why. You know, that kind of thing. I could do that. I even woke up in the middle of a fight once. Now, 
if anybody's done that, they can identify, but you know, what am I doing here and bail out of that place? But I'm, I'm into this kind of in mini blackouts, I'll call them. There's a, there's a thing, we got one of these tea sets in my house that was given to us for a wedding. And, uh, that thing doesn't sit quite level anymore. I had a resentment against that. I guess one night, I got out and uh, beat it up pretty well and, and tried to stick it back together. And it's still sitting there crooked. And every time I get kind of grandiose or think maybe I'm okay, I look at that thing and it's warped. Just about like I am. You know, it's just, just a little off center. And it sits there and it rocks. And I don't remember doing that. I just don't remember it. None of this stuff is any big deal, but my wife's starting to wake up. I'm getting up on Sunday morning, going out, drinking a cup of coffee and looking across the table. She's got that look, like you dirty rat. How could you do this to me? And I'm sitting there thinking, do what? I knew what she was thinking. I was about three-quarters paranoid by now anyhow. I knew they were out to get me, and she wasn't helping any. And I didn't know. And she was talking less and less to me. And I'm getting sicker and sicker. And in the meantime, I've... I'm out of the practice with the health department. I've bought a practice in the eastern end of Cincinnati. And things aren't too well, and they ought to be. I'm making a little money, finally. I think it takes a little money to become an alcoholic, because you got to drink enough of that stuff to do enough damage to your brain so that the symptoms become obvious. And without alcohol, my alcoholism didn't get too bad. It's the fact that I drank enough of that stuff and did enough damage to my brain that uh, got me here. When I first got here, I didn't think that was true. But the longer I've stayed around and the more I've remembered and seen, the more I believe it. That's that. Uh, that was in 1972. For the first time in my life, I got enough money together to go across the river into Kentucky and buy a full case of whiskey. Before then, it you know, you buy a pint or a half a case of beer. So Noni and I went across the river to Harris Rosedale's liquor store and bought a full mixed case of booze. We had arrived, and I can still remember the feeling coming back across the river, looking in the back of that 67 Volkswagen, there's a case of liquor back there. It was the same kind of feeling I had when I brought my my eldest daughter home from the hospital the first time. A new couple with a baby in the back seat. Boy, that was security and happiness. I really liked it. I drank most of that case that month, refilling it with, you know, bottles, hiding bottles, drinking beer to wash down the whiskey getting sicker and sicker, starting to go into convulsions at night, not knowing what they were, because once I laid down in bed at night, I wouldn't take another drink. Because I knew that if I took another drink, that would that would make me an alcoholic, you know. I'd been taking those 14-question uh, tests in the Cincinnati Enquirer, asking, you know, are you, do you have a problem with alcohol? And I'd take that test and get to the end of it, and it said if you'd answered four or more of these, uh, you definitely have a problem with alcohol, and five or more, you're an alcoholic. And every time I 
would go back and take the test again because I knew I'd probably messed up and uh, answered some of those wrong. Second time around, I'd lie. And then I it, it 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 became so obvious that I'd just say, "Well, they all know what they're talking about, anyhow. What kind of nonsense is this?" I came home on a Wednesday. Thursday was my day off, and I had a drink or two, and dropped into a blackout, and I came to, and I was arguing with my wife. You know, she started all those fights, every one of them, and uh, I can't remember what it was about, but I think it was that she tells a story that I didn't have any cigarettes, and it was her fault, and uh, (laughs) next thing I remember, I'm... uh, I'm holding a 32 pistol in my hand, and I'm aiming it at her, and then aiming it at me, saying, whatever. I'd have shoot you. You don't deserve this. Or I'd have shoot me. I don't deserve this. And then the next thing I remember, I'm back into a blackout again. I come back out again, and, and she's gone. We lived in a third-floor walk-up on Madison Road in Cincinnati. And if you've ever had a feeling or, a, you know, a, a, a second or a third sense about the police being behind the next billboard, I had a sense right then that they were there. And they were. I walked over to the window and looked down, and there was a big blue town car down below. And there was a knock at the door, and my wife said, Jimmy, are you in there? I said, I'm here. I said, I got the police with me. They'd like to come in and talk to you. Where's the gun? I said, it's over on the table. I said, all right, and they opened the door, and this great big guy from the ASAP unit just kind of filled that door. He looked at me. He said, how you doing? I said, what does any alcoholic, I'm all, well, all right. He said, you want to come with me? Yeah, you know. <laughs> That's like, you know, your money or your life. Do you have a choice? It's... uh and then right then, his red-headed sidekick came around the door with a stretcher, and he said, Get on. Wait a minute. You know, I'm still in control of my destiny. I have some dignity left. I'd rather walk, you know. Can't I walk down? I'm okay. I can. He said, No. Nope. Get on. I said, Yes, sir. I got on. They strapped me in this thing, and they, they took me out, out, this, out the door. There are no elevators, and it's an old apartment building. Going down the stairs. You know when the police department gets a, gets a call, a man in, with a gun in the apartment, uh, every cop for five miles around is out there with the lights flashing. And if you want to meet your neighbors in your apartment building, that's, they were all there watching me go. As we went out the front door, there stood my father-in-law. A finer man never lived. He worked the 12 steps of this program. He didn't have to. And as I passed him, I told him what he could do with everything he owned or hoped to own. With appropriate hand signals, the top of my voice. And there was this drunken son of a bitch who'd married his eldest daughter, going by, and he never said a word. Just, he was to offer me nothing but help. I got out of there and they, I got out of there, they threw me in the back of that wagon and uh, took me over to the general hospital 
And I guess they had me, it was a busy night that night, they had me strapped down in a gurney in the hallway because they didn't know what to do with me right then. They had other things to tend to, and drunks, you know, they see those constantly. I laid in that bed and screamed and hollered, I'm told, at anybody that came near me. I don't remember any of this. And then the next thing I remember is I'm being pulled out of the back end of another ambulance and being fitted for a straitjacket at an Emer at uh, Emerson Cincinnati Mental Health Institute. And then they put me in a lockup, strapped me down. I was to stay strapped down to a bed for three days. Obviously, they'd made a mistake. There's a, a guy with my education and background and family and intelligence. And they'd made a mistake, and I was a little PO'd. But after three days there of lockup and strapped down, they let me to let me go out on the floor with the regular crazy people. Just out, just the regular crazies. And I was to roam around there for another week, resentful, angry, mad at everybody who'd put me there. My wife, my in-laws, my job, the IRS, the state of Ohio, city of Cincinnati, you name it, they all, it was all their fault. And, uh, after a couple of days of sitting around playing cards with the two or three other Alks that were in there with me, they were treating my drug addiction with drugs. That's the way they did it at that place at that time. A guy said, hey, you know, there's an AA meeting across the way here in that next building. Would you want to go? Because he was a, a relapsed AA member who was there. He'd been there before. He knew the ropes. I thought, Barry, you know, I guess maybe alcohol had something to do with me being there. So I'll go over and see what, what they got to say. So I went over to this A&A meeting in the next building that Tuesday night, and there was a good-looking woman sitting there with a blackboard behind her, nice pair of legs, I'll tell you. It's, uh, and, and Jerry, Jerry M. was her name. She was the secretary of the psychiatrist who diagnosed me as a non-alcoholic. And she had Jelnick's chart there, and that's that progression, progression from social drinking through uh, loss of jobs, family, uh, extra drinking, trouble at home, uh, anxiety, all those goofy stuff that, that, that goes with uh, alcoholism. And right about three steps from the bottom of that thing, there's a little circle at the bottom of this one. It said death, insanity, or incarceration. And about three steps back up, I identified with a lot of the stuff on the way down. I thought, boy, you know. About three steps from the bottom, there was voluntary or involuntary commitment to asylum. And there I was. <laughs> Eight years of higher education, I can figure a few things out. And I looked at that and I said, you know, you're an alcoholic. And it was from the first AA meeting, I knew I was an alcoholic up here. I was an admitted alcoholic up and I got out of there with a fistful of Valium, and that, that's neither here nor there, but I got out of that hospital with one real important thing. It wasn't a fact that I admitted I was an alcoholic. That was the least of my advantages. That was The fact that I got out of there was there were these two guys from AA that identified me as an alcoholic, and they cared enough about me to call me 
and chased me around for the next two years because I was not through drinking yet. They'd call me on Wednesday night and say, Jim, you want to go to a meeting? Ah, I can't do it, Bob. I, I'm busy. i got to spend some time with my wife. You know, at this point, <laughs> at this point, you know, she's uh, not real happy with me. And a bad thing had happened to me. Real bad. I didn't know how bad it was until a couple years later. This My insurance man, who was also a patient of mine, my wife called him up said, Jack, Jimmy's in the hospital. We need some hospitalization disability coverage for him because he's going to be there for a while, I think. And, and Jack said, uh, Noni, uh, where is he? Well, Jack, uh, Jimmy's in the hospital and, uh, uh, he, you know, he's not going to be working for a while. And Jack, Noni, where is he? And about this went around about three more times. He says, Noni, where is he? said, Jack, he's at Emerson North Hospital. Jack said, oh, he's in there for alcoholism. He said, I'm an alcoholic. I've seen him drink. I know what he is. She said, I'd like you to talk to my wife. That was the beginning of the end right there. <laughs> Wasn't anything AA had to say to me. It was those damn Al-Anons. Oh. Well, I kept my wife in Al-Anon because we kept drinking for another two years. She She didn't get cured. And uh, she went to Al-Anon with this woman and was to go out on every Thursday night. And I resented that because, you know, there were people in the community and a man of my standing just couldn't handle that sort of thing. And, <laughs> oh, they, she became a black belt Al-Anon. It was awful. <laughs> You know, that's, that's, you can tell them, as you just walk in, the elevator door opens, and you're going to step in. She looks down and sees there's no elevator car there, and she watches you walk in. <laughs> Better you than me. It's, uh... <laughs> well, these two guys would call me up on Wednesdays, and they'd take me to AA meetings drunk. And they'd take me to AA meetings when I was undrunk. I wasn't sober. But I just had, didn't have to be drinking that day. And for the next year, they did that for me about once a week. And I liked these AA meetings because you guys were laughing and screaming and hollering and telling these outrageous stories. And then I got critical. And I analyzed, I haven't done that yet, I haven't done that yet, I haven't done that yet. Hadn't lost a job. How could I? I was the boss. Hadn't lost my wife. She hadn't left yet. I was, I was uh, kind of uh, confused about that. And uh, hadn't done any of these bad things. You know, I didn't think. And they took me to the meetings, and I looked at you people smiling and laughing and telling these stories about living in boxes and lost wives and jobs and cars. Trouble. And they're laughing. I thought, boy, you aren't going to get anywhere. I'd analyze you people. Now, what I didn't realize at that time was that you were where you wanted to be. I wasn't getting anywhere. And they kept saying, kid, keep coming back. It'll be all right. And I'd sit around. I'd go to this little meeting. They got me out of a center. They, they, they took me down to Oak Street Center, which was a big group, and it just terrified me. It just terrified me. 
So this guy sitting next to me, he said, hey, I know this little meeting over the way. You want to go over there? Took me over to this meeting. They had a big round table and about 15 people sat there. A guy named Bill D. was there. And old Bill is dead now. He was sober a lot of years in. Bill sent me a Christmas card that year. And I can't tell you how much that meant to me. Another human being actually sending this, this, uh, this drunk this card, but it was, it was really precious. And these people would sit around and talk about the 12 steps and you know, I read that book. I bought it. I'll read anything. I read the back of Budweiser cans for years. And I read the AA book just about with the same results. It was, uh, and I thought I worked the 12 steps the first time I read them. And that was, uh, that wasn't to be. I'd sit around these tables and I'd analyze and, and read and discuss and I tried, I tried to get sobriety through semantics, you know. I figured if I could analyze these steps and figure this outfit out, I'd be alright. And it didn't work, of course. And they, they'd go around the table talking. Each one would say their piece. They'd get to me and, what do you got to say, Jim? The guy at the across the table could smell me by this time, but they always ask, you know, what do you think? And I'd tell them, and I'd lecture, and I'd preach. Sometimes I'd just be angry. And at the end of the meeting, the guy, you know, around the table, Bill or Dick W. would walk over kind of slowly, and he'd put his arm around me like this, say, Jim, how you doing? Well, all right, Dick. He said, you know... Could it be possible that uh, you had something to drink today? I don't know if you smell like I do when I drink, but I smell like whatever it was I was drinking for a long time. I exuded it. And I say, well, Dick, I uh, had a little bit. He said, that's all right. I said, just make this your first 24 hours. Keep coming back. You'll be all right. Never once was I ever put down given a hard time to at an AA meeting. As I kept on drinking, my wife kept going to Al-Anon. We ended up in North Carolina the next year. I ended up in a hospital in Batesville, Indiana. I woke up on a July 4th day. I was just going to have a regular July 4th, six-pack of beer, hot dogs, barbecue. Woke up four days later, and I knew it was over. I called up Dick W. I said, Dick, I need help. This is a year and a half after I'd been in the first hospital. And Dick said, okay. They took me down to Batesville, and I spent two weeks there. It used to be you just showed up. They had two AA meetings a day. That was it. No no counseling, no nothing. But they got you. They got you well, at least for two weeks. They kept you away from the booze. <laughs> and I thought it was a big deal that I'd signed in there. You know, they didn't carry me in in a straitjacket. I thought it was a big deal I was able to sign in. And after two weeks down there, I've never laughed more in my life. I have, to this day, I they would go to bed sometimes just screaming with laughter with this 48 or 50 other alcoholics in there, get trying to get sober and laughing and, and having a good time. It was there that I read the big book again. They keep re- rewriting this big book all the time. Every year it's a new edition. And I read it, and it was there. I was sitting there, shaking, and I read this book again. And I and here it is. It's in Freedom from Bondage. It's a it's a story that, about a lady in AA. 
and my head cleared for a minute, and this thing jumped out at me. It was here that I realized for the first time that as a practicing alcoholic, I had no rights. Society can do anything it chooses to do with me when I am drunk, and I can't lift a finger to stop it, for I forfeit my rights through the simple expedient of becoming a menace to myself and to the people around me. That's where I was, and I looked around, and I I spent my two weeks in Batesville, and I got out of there and made some more friends there that were to save my life a little later, and a week later I was drunk. I had alcoholism bad. I thought I could quit drinking any time I could. And through my drinking career, I did. I did it several times. For whatever reason it was, I was able to quit for three months, for six months. You know, just to get a job done sometimes, I could put the plug in a jug and walk away and do what I was supposed to do. I'd done it. And therefore, since I could do it, I couldn't be an alcoholic. That was a reservation I had in the back of my mind when I first got to AA. I could quit. After I got out of Batesville, I found out I couldn't because I was drunk again that next week. Ended up in a in a uh, kind of a detox halfway house down in the bottoms of Cincinnati, a $35 a week room. And I spent another week and a half shaking it out there. I got out of that place. When tried to go back to work again, I was still drinking, just controlled drinking. I started up again. My wife went down to North Carolina for a vacation. We had to schedule anyhow. It didn't matter. And by this time, I'd taken a reasonably successful practice. The guy had worked for 40 years before he sold it to me, and I'd run it into the ground to where I wasn't doing a whole lot. So I had time off. I had plenty of time. So I went down to North Carolina with her for a week after she got down there because I was trying to quit. I figured if she got down there, I'd quit and go down, and then things would be all right. But I couldn't stop. I got down there, and after about two days of being without booze and no sleep, I went down to the liquor store and bought a half a gallon of Canada Dry Vodka. By this time, I wasn't kidding myself. I knew what I was, and I knew what I needed, and I didn't want it. I didn't want that stuff. God, I didn't want it. I wanted to quit so bad. So I'd get through that half a gallon of Canada Dry Vodka in about two days and quit again. Two days later, I'd be back down. Twenty miles to the liquor store. Ten-mile trip each way. Get back, and I'd hide that. We stayed at the cottage down there with a laundry room out back where the pump was, the water pump and the tools, and that liquor sat in there, and as you came around from swimming, took a shower right outside of there, and I'd slip in after the shower and take a couple of good gulps and inside the house just to keep from shaking apart. I'd get through another half a gallon and quit again. After about two days of two sleepless nights and knowing I'm just falling apart and shaking, I couldn't quit. Back down ten miles to buy another half a gallon. In, in the meantime, there was a guy down there named Frank Jack. Frank 12-stepped me that whole time. He took me to meetings when I was drunk, and he took me to meetings when I was undrunk. And the people down there loved me. They knew me. I'd been going down to the same place for 13 years. And there was a lady there that I'd known was an alcoholic for years, but I'd never seen her take a drink. And Rosemary had been sober now, I don't know how many years. 
And I walked into that first AA meeting down there, and she's knitting. And looked over and said, welcome. We've been waiting a long time for you. But I still wasn't through drinking. I got out of there, and a, and a very fortunate thing happened to me down in North Carolina. Because when I got to AA, I hadn't done any of all those things yet, I didn't think. I wanted to be, I knew what I wanted to be, and I, I had an idea of what I was. And they just didn't, didn't mix. I looked, I was not drinking again. We're cleaning out the refrigerator to clean out the cottage to, so we could go home. And in the meantime, I had a six-month-old baby. My first, my eldest. And I'm down on my knees cleaning out the refrigerator. My wife's sweeping out the back of the place. She comes out and makes a remark to me. I had about a half a pint just to steady my nerves. And I took a swing at her. This is the only time in my life I can ever remember hitting my wife. I was about right out here when I knew it was wrong, but I knew I couldn't stop it. And it just went on through and caught her. And Al-Anon had trained her well. She was in the next room instantly, back out with a packed bag, the baby over her arm, out of the house. I can still remember watching her walk down that driveway, 300-foot driveway, and hitchhiking down the road. She was getting away from me. She knew what she had to do. I sat down there, and I didn't drink for the rest of that day, and Frank came down later that day and said, Jim, are you in there? We got your wife and baby on a plane back to Cincinnati. We want you to come down and spend the night with us. I said, all right, Jack. And I went down to Jack's house that night, Frank and Jack and Mila, his wife. I had to buy half a gallon of vodka to get down there, though. I got down there, and I said, he said, come on in, spend the night. You got any booze? I said, sure. He said, well, let me keep it. I gave him that unopened half gallon, and... I spent the night there. I was at, I went to bed that night at 11 o'clock and slept like a baby. First good night's sleep I had in weeks. And as I got on the road the next morning to go back, Frank and Mila said, you know, you really ought to go to treatment. I said, hey, it doesn't work. They said, all right. I'd rather you blew your brains out there with a 38 than with alcohol. I said, I love you. But I got kids coming the other way on the road, and I don't need another drunk going the other way, you know, approaching them. I got on a car, in the car and drove back to Cincinnati, and about four days later I went over to pick up my wife because it took that long to build up enough courage and had to get a half a pint to even do that. I got over there, and my father-in-law looked at me, and he said, Jim, he said, if you ever need any help, just ask. I went back. down to the Oak Street Center about two days later because I knew I wasn't in any shape to go to work. I had to take another week off just to quit shaking. And uh, down at the Oak Street Center, I looked around. I saw these guys that I'd known for about a year and a half, same old guys sitting in the same old corner. I said, I guess I'm with you guys for the rest of my life. And at that moment, a weight lifted off my shoulders. It was wonderful. It was really incredible. But that didn't. That wasn't the end of my drinking because 90 days later, 90 days clean and sober, I've been around AA for two years now, 
They kept telling me, do 90 meetings in 90 days. Work the steps. Go to meetings. Don't drink. I've been trying to get sober with drinking. I've been trying to to get well without working the steps. I was a two-stepper. 90 days after that problem in North Carolina, that one that bit hit my wife, I was to find out later when she gave her Al-Anon leads, talking with her friends, and as we started to communicate later on, that I was a son of a bitch. I was a wife beater. I did it in blackouts. She had bruises. I even bit her once. I mean, that's uh, that's an appropriate thing for a dentist to do. Now, that's that's really appropriate. She was afraid to sleep in the same bed with me because I just may turn over and belt somebody. You know, it was it was craziness. It was insanity, and none of that I remember. I don't remember a lot of the stuff that happened, but that's the way it was. Ninety days after that fiasco in North Carolina, it was Christmas of 1974. I took a drink the day after Christmas, 1974. One drink, 6.30 in the evening, because I was angry. My wife thought that I had to go to this party with her friends, and I knew I had to go. So, 6.30 that night, I took one drink. At 10.30... That same night, I took my second drink. And at 1.30 in the morning, I was putting on my coat, leaving the party, talking with some young lady that was there. I came out of a blackout. Nobody at that party knew I was in a blackout. My wife did. She said, I think I ought to drive. I, think, I said, I think you better. I was to stop drinking about four days later. She was gone again for the same reason she left all the other times, this this guy was uh, probably swinging at her. This crazy man. And this guy called me up on the phone and said, Jimmy, this is Chick. We've got your wife and baby over here. They're safe. Would you like to go to a hospital? I said, Chick, I'll go anywhere. Just come and get me. I need help bad. And they took me up to Fairbanks Hospital in Indianapolis. I'm a treatment junkie, you know. I hadn't quite got the message of AA. If you don't drink, go to meetings, work the steps, you'll be all right. And I figured it had to be more complicated than that. I didn't figure out you people knew how to get sober and happy or something. I was real sick. And they said, work the steps. I got up to Fairbanks, and it was there that I finally came to realize just what you were talking about, because a guy named Ben Quick died for me. Ben was my age. I was too young to be an alcoholic, 27 or 28 when I got here. If I were as old as these two guys that were chasing me around, I'd quit too, you know. They'd had it. They're burned out drunks. Those same two guys are still doing it. They're 10 years older and 10 years crazier and 10 years happier. That... uh it was just beyond my comprehension that I had to quit drinking. Because, obviously, it's not fatal. I've been drinking for a long time. It hadn't killed me. 
But Ben was there, and Ben was my age. Wife, family, job, kids. And Ben died. I watched him. That kind of gets your attention. I said, these guys aren't kidding. It's really chronic and progressive and fatal. He bled to death. I think he bumped his belly and just, you know, that was it. He was in such bad shape from the booze, he just died of internal hemorrhaging. And right then, I got religion, believe me. I did a fourth and a fifth step. Because up to this time, I thought the nonsense I was telling around coffee tables after meetings was a fourth and a fifth step. And the war stories I was telling was a fourth and a fifth step. It was here that I finally realized for the first time that I had to do it as it was written down in a big book. I had to get a balance sheet. I had to write it down. I had to see it in black and white. And I had to go over and find somebody and tell them this. And I did. And from this day, from that day to this, I have not been bothered with even the remotest desire to take a drink. That's incredible. That's a miracle. I got out of that hospital and had a pretty good first year. And then another thing came into my life. It's called laughing gas or nitrous oxide. Just other chemicals. It doesn't matter, you know. Most of whatever will get me away from myself will do the same thing to me. But I can remember that stuff because I used it on my patients and I tried a little on myself once in a while. And it sure made me feel good. Thinking back, it made me feel exactly like that first drink did when I was 13 years old. And I was to go through an addiction to that nitrous oxide in about six months in the same kind of a pattern that I did with alcohol. First just a little bit and then a little bit more. And then pretty soon I'd just, you know, I'd sniff it for five minutes and turn it off and go home. And then I'd spend 20 minutes and then an hour. And then it got to where I was spending all night hooked up to the nitrous tank in my office, seeing those bugs and bunnies and, and all kinds of, it's an hallucinogen. It's a, it'll, it'll make you see things that aren't there. It's crazy. It was wonderful. Talk to them. You name it. And, uh, oh. I saw it through prayer and medication, conscious contact, to improve my conscious contact. That's really what I was doing. I was seeking some kind of spiritual experience out of this stuff. I didn't realize that uh, you had to work the steps to get that. So <laughs> I I got real in real bad trouble with that. My wife knew what was going on, and she did what a good Alan Honor does. She ignored it. Let me hang myself. And finally it got bad enough. I'd been hooked up to that all night. And I woke up in my office in 1977. It was, I think it was on a Tuesday morning. And it snowed the night before. Worst blizzard in 100 years. And I looked out and thought the world had ended. And I was scared to death. I was crouched over in the corner. Scared to death. And the telephone had rang and I wouldn't answer it. And I was terrified because it, it wouldn't ring. And I was alone. I looked outside and no cars are moving. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. There's 18 inches of snow. And nobody's moving off of that hill that I was on. Finally the phone rang and 
I went back over to my nitrous tank and tried to get loaded again. It didn't work anymore. If you ever drunk yourself sober, you know what I'm talking about. No matter how much you put down, it doesn't do any good. My wife called and said, Jimmy, you out there? I said, yeah. I said, what are you doing? I said, I'm using the nitrous. She said, I know. Can I call your sponsor? Called my sponsor up and we slid down that hill in his car and they took me home and got me admitted to Hazelden. And I can still remember the fear in my heart and my head. As I walked out, I thought I'd done myself in. I'd lost bladder control. A lot of things, you know, when you when your body's given up on you, and I, my brain was really bad shape, just terrible shape. As I was walking out of my house, I took the pictures of my kid, kids. I had two of them then, stuck it in my shirt like this and buttoned it up. I didn't think I was coming back. I didn't think I was. They stuck me on a plane, sent me to Hazleton, and I spent 31 days up there. The only thing they did for me at Hazelden was, said, don't drink, read the big book, work those steps, and go to meetings, you'll be all right. You're the stupidest intellectual we've ever met. For God's sakes, don't read anything. It'll get you in trouble. You know, just do that. It kind of brings brings to mind that there's one sign I saw down at your club today, down the, down the way, and there's one at Oak Street, and there's one at a lot of meetings that says, think think, think. That'll get me in trouble every time. I just got to ignore that. I just cannot handle that. It's, uh, I can think myself into a drink for, you know, I, I just, I can do it. That, that uh, slogan is not good for me. Easy does it, you know, one day at a time, all that stuff's wonderful. But think, I'm not very good at it because I can get in trouble with it. I got out of Hazelden, came back, and the first year's clean and sober was miserable. If anybody out there is having a hard time, you're miserable, and you don't want to be sober, that's okay. Because I was miserable, but I didn't want to be drunk. I had a bad time. It was a year-long depression, death in the family, lawsuit that started and lasted for four years. I was in over my head financially. Uh, I was in a lot of trouble. And the people that came to help me were people in AA. I'd go down to the club, and I'd go say, My God, they're going to get me to shut me down here. I borrowed the down payment for my office, not to mention all the money I didn't have. And uh, the city was coming after me to shut me down. And I had no way to make a living without this place. And I thought I was in trouble. I'd go down there and wail out my tail of woe, and Dune would sit there, and and, uh, and Bruce... They'd look at me and Dune would look and he'd laugh. He'd say, hey, think of it this way. He said, four years ago, you wouldn't have had this trouble. You wouldn't. And Bruce would look at me and he'd say, you know, he said, I sobered up. And he said, I got into Alcoholics Anonymous and went in business with another alcoholic. He said, and that other guy went south with the assets and left me with all the liabilities. I went bankrupt, lost my business. He said, don't worry about it, kid. You'll be all right. And I'd go home and do that. And they just stayed around me. And when I showed up in court for this uh, hearing, the people that showed up there with me were people that I didn't even ask to help. They just showed up. They were here from AA. They were 
there were witnesses and stuff like that that I didn't even know were on my side. And they were all from around the tables. And all they did was tell the truth. And it worked out all right. I wasn't particularly enamored of staying with my wife. I mean, there was one thing about that woman that just drove me crazy that first year. No matter what decision came up, she was always right. Now, boy, that just drove me crazy. I just couldn't stand it. It didn't matter what it was. She was right again. And I didn't like that. So I figured, well, I'll stick around for the kids. And I used that for a while, and I'm glad I did, because uh, about a year or two after I sobered up, I looked over and realized what uh, what a treasure I had over there. And it's been really neat ever since. We've been having a lot of fun. We get to conferences together. We go on vacations together. We fight together, you know. I don't know if you've ever fought with somebody and then stuck around to see what happened afterwards, but I learned to do that in AA. Used to be I'd fight and go out the door, you know, and sulk, sit around and suck my thumb. I'll get even with her. But anymore, if we have a brawl, it's usually short and that's the end of it. The kids look at us. They can't figure it out, you know. We're screaming and hollering one minute. You can't do that. Oh, shut up, you know. I'd take her inventory for her, and she didn't take mine. And I'd take her inventory for her again. She didn't take mine. I just couldn't figure it out. They taught her in al says, no matter what you do, just leave him alone. He'll get good enough, I mean, if he hangs around. If he doesn't, you're better off anyhow. It's... And we've had we've had a lot of fun together. I, I really had to learn to quarter again, and I learned that from people in the program, and I learned it from people outside the program. AA's taught me to open my mind up to, to the rest of humanity. At the end of this thing, it says, With deep shame came the knowledge, too, that I had lived with no sense of social obligation, nor had I known the meaning of moral responsibility to my fellow man. And that was pretty much me when I put the plug in a jug and I sobered up and I looked around and said, what have you done? And since then I've been working at it a little bit at a time, trying to get involved with my community, trying to get involved with the school my kids are in, you know, PTA meetings, you name it. Just doing little things. i got to kind of practice at being a community member because I never learned how. I was drunk or get on my way to getting drunk from the time I was 13 until I was about 28. And all that time I was a teenager and I should have been learning what I should have been learning. I wasn't. So when I woke up at age 28, 29, or 30, I was a stranger in a parade in a world I never made. I didn't really belong there because I didn't know quite what I was supposed to be doing there. And it's through AA and the people around me and those those earth people too, they've helped me a lot by, by just being people and being kind and loving. AA's taught me how to love. I thought, you know, that uh, the kind of love they sell toothpaste with was all there was. And AA has told me that that's, you know, they, they've really shown me the meaning of love. A concern for my fellow man. We're all in it together, you know. And they've shown me that. My kids today, I've got four. 
I didn't have any when I got here. So if any of you guys just got here and you want kids, uh, geez. I'll tell you, we had to stop something. But a lot of people think it's the way, uh, you know, alcohol destroys the uh, testosterone and, and lowers sex drive and you name it. It's not that at all. It's the way you smell. It's, uh, my mother-in-law still looks at me funny you know she can't figure me out she doesn't know what alcoholism is but she's happy that I'm not drinking anymore I stole more booze from my in-laws they had a bar in the basement on the first floor and in the kitchen and talk about a fast moving individual that's an alcoholic looking for a drink they were in the basement I was on the first floor they were on the first floor I was in the kitchen you know, moving. Can I get you anything? Zip. You know, I'd be in there. I've never paid her back for the booze I drank, but I'm being nice to her anyhow. You know, she's welcome at my home at any time. And uh, she's happy to be there mostly. She doesn't understand me. She doesn't understand her daughter either, but that's the way it is. You know, we're, we're a couple of dried out and sober alcoholics. She is a codependent, you know, and a member of Al-Anon. And Al-Anon and AA has opened up a method of communication between she and I that nobody else has unless you're an AA and Al-Anon, and you know what that means. And that's really super. We're like railroad tracks. They go, they never meet, and we're both individuals, and we realize that. But we've got a lot of ties between us, and every year we put a few more between us, and that's really neat. They connect us. And I'm I'm in love with my wife. I, I gotta tell you that. And I'm grateful to Alanon for getting me sober. AA helped a lot too, I'll tell you. But I it's like your money or your life. AA was the part that kept standing by me every time I got up and Alanon was the one that kept kicking me down again. <laughs> And between the two of them, you know, they softened me up enough to made me, and they made me teachable. And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for all the misery that I had to go through, and I regret what I had to put other people through. But I'm glad they stuck around, and they they stuck around because they love me. And I'm sticking around with them because I love them, and I love all you folks for being here and being sober. And for being alcoholics, because I'm grateful to be an alcoholic. Thank you.